Welcome, everyone. We're going to get started. Um, at, we're very excited tonight. As you know, uh, Kishana Gray is going to give us a talk. And uh, I'm going to read a little bit of her bio. Uh, so she's an MLK visiting scholar in women and gender studies and also in comparative media studies and writing. She's the founder of the Critical Gaming Lab at Eastern Kentucky University. And uh, she's developing new initiatives around equity and gaming, which you can check at equityandgaming.com. Um, her work broadly intersects identity and new media, although she has a particular focus on games. And her most recent book, Race, Gender, and Deviance in Xbox Live, provides a theoretical framework for examining deviant behavior and deviant bodies within that virtual gaming community. Her work has been widely featured in uh, many outlets, uh, scholarly and popular. Um, and she's a featured blogger and podcaster with Not Your Mama's Gamer. Um, and she is a really good person uh, to go through uh, the rise of a fascist presidency with. If that, if that ever happens to you, I highly recommend being on a plane with Kishana and then being we in Philly. We did get through that together. We did. We did. We did. We so did. without further ado, <laughs> thank you. let us know what is going on in I appreciate your research. You. I appreciate you. Thank you all for coming. I appreciate you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I realized as I was doing this, I, I hope, hope it's not too long. I guess there were a lot of things I wanted to say, so hopefully they're engaging and interesting and can reach some of you and we can have, you know, some great conversations. I want to make sure to leave room for conversation. Um, how much time am I allotted? Uh, we usually like to get to Q&A by no later than 6, and then Q&A can go till 6.30. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Good deal. Good deal. Um, again, thank you all for coming. Um, and so your feedback is welcome, and it's open, and um, I appreciate you all for, for being here. There has been a, a manifestation of physical misogynoir in digital spaces. Misogynoir, you know, it might be a name that some of you are not familiar with, um, but you are actually very familiar with it. Um, so it's a new term for an old concept, right? Um, and it's an old concept that women of color have had to constantly remind the world of. It's a concept that recognizes our holistic identities and realities. It's a concept that's rooted at the intersection of what's here and what's here. But why? Why do we have to constantly insert our own existences into spaces? Why are we not recognized? Why are we not acknowledged? Why are we constantly forced into others' definitions? We gotta go way back for an answer to this. Way back, you know, where can we trace, you know, the origins of misogynoir, if you will? Twitter? The movement for black lives? Keep going. The women's movement? the black civil rights movement, the lynching era, the passage of the reconstruction amendments, just a little bit before that, we can trace the earliest articulations of misogynoir to one of the originators of black girl magic, if you will, Sojourner Truth. She strategically delivered a blow to whiteness, to masculinity, and to the white women who would begin the dangerous trend of privileging only their form of womanhood. I'll tell you a little bit of what she said. That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over mud puddles 
or gives me any best place? And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I've plowed and planted and gathered into barns, and no man could head me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I've borne 13 children and seen most all sold off to slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? Hashtag ain't I a woman. Hashtag misogynoir. In what mistruth explained, and within these small phrases, exists the intersection of race, gender, class, sexuality, what it means to be black and woman in a slave economy, in a patriarchal society, in a heteronormative world. From Sojourner Truth to Moya Bailey, we have to constantly be reminded of the lashes of neglect, invisibility, exploitation, marginalization, empowerment, and resilience. And it's rarely discussed, but early during the suffrage movement, black and white women supported one another's issues. However, they soon parted ideological ways with the passage of the Reconstruction Amendments, when white women realized that Negro males were going to be afforded legal suffrage before them. As black feminist scholars would articulate years later, whether or not it was their intent, but white women wanted the exclusive power over the right to vote, granting the white race total supremacy and domination. We saw a return um, to this with the number of white women who voted for Donald Trump, actually. But of course, that's another lecture for another day. Using black women's innovative use of digital technologies via the hashtag, via reappropriating imagery, via meme culture, via Facebook pages, via gaming, I will, I will highlight examples through a lens of black feminism and give attention to the uniqueness of black women's use of digital technologies. My aim is not just to highlight these issues, but to highlight the technology and media um, that was used that put these issues at the fore of national and international conversations. Because many black women are often touted as poster children for the digital divide. Black women have historically utilized media and technology for their own means, often reappropriating it for their own purposes. And this hacking is often viewed counter to what the originators intended and often downplayed as not innovative, but rather black women playing around with or attempting something new. And often they would term it failing. On the contrary, Black women's tech savvy should be explored for the ability to broach the boundaries and break the barriers that white men are often praised for. The same praise is rarely extended to women of color. So what do we call it? Hashtag feminism, feminist futures, digital feminism, techno feminism, virtual feminism. While each of the conceptual concepts that I just named are distinct, what binds them all is that intersection of feminism and digital cultures. But what they're missing is an acknowledgement of the role that identity plays when one can't or refuses to part ways with some aspect of their self. And these feminist engagements with technology and culture are useful, but they are limiting as they fail to capture race and other identifiers, and that must also be at the forefront of analysis. 
The analytical frameworks needed to capture the digital lives of women must have the capability of deconstructing structural inequalities within these spaces, as well as acknowledge the role that the structural inequalities have had in influencing those black digital practices. So for instance, for an example, the construction of a hashtag that reads solidarity is for white women is largely rooted in the failure of mainstream feminism to adequately address the realities of women of color. But it's read and received as black women being angry or black women being bullies. Mickey Kendall, the creator of Solidarity is for White Women, created this in response to a rant by a self-proclaimed male feminist, Hugo Schweitzer, where he stated he'd been particularly awful to women of color. Mickey Kendall shed light on this situation as well as the general problem that women of color have with the lack of inclusivity of mainstream feminism. This case is also significant because it reveals that relationship with white that that relationships with white men have always influenced and affected both white and feminists of color. Or as Nancy Henley describes, the everyday social relationships that glue together the social superstructure. As Jesse Daniels articulates, the dominance of white women as architects and defenders of a framework of exclusive feminism has yet to be interrogated by mainstream feminism in meaningful ways. Jesse Dan Daniels furthers by highlighting the tendency of whiteness to say that black women are engaging in toxic forms of feminism. There's rarely an acknowledgement by mainstream feminism and journalists who write about it to discuss the dominance of white women inside feminist circles, not just in the second wave, but today in the digital era. Journalist Michelle Goldberg specifically called out Kendall for starting a toxic Twitter war. And her articulation of her intricate identity is destructive for feminism. She blamed folks like Mickey Kendall for the Twitter wars. Women of color have historically challenged universal feminism and currently employ social media to continue this practice. And while the backlash to this hashtag was significant, the outpouring of serious and satirical tweets associated with the hashtag were empowering to the women. Um, and, they have, and they also opened up a much need, needed conversation about the invisibility and forced absence of women of color and the double standard that women of color often call out. This call out culture that we are in that skews black women's proclamation of humanity is distorted and masked. When black women call out the hypocrisy and double standards, they are swift, swiftly labeled toxic. Swiftly, yeah, I use the word swift. It isolates Nicki Minaj as she is shamed for highlighting the double standards of beauty that black women are subject to by black men and white women. The reoccurring debate stems around what, what constitutes ideal body sizes. Nicki called out the music industry's body shaming practices aimed at curvy black women. In her hit song, Anaconda, she celebrates the erotica and bodaciousness of thicker women. But there was quick denouncement of black female sexuality in a way that wasn't seen when Kim Kardashian West posted nude selfies and is praised, or even when Kate Upton and Lily Aldred's almost nude pics were deemed acceptable. Serena Williams is also often subject to body shaming practices. And this is the case for many athletic, most muscular women in sports. She is often called ape and gorilla, and even her sex is called into question when her and her sister were both referred to as the Williams brothers on Twitter. Black women across sports, from tennis to basketball to track and field, 
endure this maltreatment and it is particularly heinous because of the intersecting nature of their identities. That oppression is amplified. While interrogating and coming to terms with being invisible, black women have to also critically challenge the narrative associated when they are made visible. But whose narratives dominate black women's visibility? The mammy, you know, McDonald defines the mammy as the doting, self-confident stereotype of the black domestic who suffers and endures. Other critics added to the definition, further describing the mammy as the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-hearing, all-understanding figure. Sounds like God, so I'll take that one, right? But often heavyset and dark-skinned, who lives to serve and is shown as loving her white family and children more than her own. Historically, Fuller comments that the mammy image was used to present asexual or desexualized views of black women, primarily to diffuse allegations that white men took sexual advantage of black females during slavery. The more masculine looks of the mammy removed her as a sexual threat to white women. In fact, her ample body and dark skin were the antithesis of the white beauty ideal, allowing the mammy character to regularly offer harmless and humorous advice to her white mistresses. The sapphire is portrayed in popular culture as sassy mamas who won their homes with iron fists, including berating black husbands and children. She is rude, loud, malicious, stubborn, overbearing, tart tongue, emasculating, one hand on her hip, the other pointing and jabbing, violently and rhythmically shaking and rocking her head. Mocks men for offenses ranging from being unemployed to sexually pursuing white women. McDonald noted that the Sapphire is generally unable to say even a simple sentence without using incorrect grammar, improper meanings, mispronunciations, implying though through the image that black women are ignorant and uneducated. Sapphire is harsh, loud, uncouth, usually making the other characters uh, seem more professional, more charming and polished by contrast. She is the angry black woman. The hypersexual Jezebel, according to Green, was a highly sexualized and often scantily dressed image, often defined as being light-skinned, with long straight hair, and delicate features found in white beauty ideals. The antithesis of Mammy. The Jezebel sexuality is regularly used against her to absolve white males of responsibility for the sexual abuse and rape of black women. Contemporary manifestations of these stereotypes include ghetto bitch, project hoe, gold digger, skeezer, baby mama, chicken head, ratchet. While most marginalized groups are perceived through a distorted lens, women of color are routinely defined by a specific set of grotesque caricatures that are reductive, inaccurate, and unfair. Today, these and other stereotypes are so prevalent they are constantly repackaged and mutate into contemporary versions of their old selves. We still see them, we see them hidden in characters like Olivia Pope and Scandal, they're there. Media portrayals offer singular visions of women's lives, their behaviors and their roles. Women are consistently underrepresented, misrepresented across media. Feminists are particularly concerned about the representations of women and femininity, which promulgate unrealistic standards of physical appearance. Girls and women evaluate themselves based on these idealized representations. And men of color often adopt disturbing understandings of their own women and hold them to higher standards and punish them for not upholding these idealized fantasies and gazes. 
These images are in constant clash with women's reality. Women and girls face conflicting messages about who they are, who they should be, who they can become, and how they should act. Conflicting constructions of black womanhood only serve to reify who is and who is not eligible for full inclusion into womanhood. Black women have long had their identities constructed by outside forces, by masculinity, and by other entities that don't value black women's agency. So black women and girls struggle for self-determination and self-definition against these distorted representations. Hegemonic ideologies dominate the narrative of, of women's life in the public sphere, and women must work hard to resist these destructive forces. Social media has provided a means to combat these oppressive narratives and allow women the ability to define their own realities. As digital feminists contend, internet technologies are an effective means to resist <coughs> oppressive and repressive gender and racialized regimes. However, because internet technologies still embody hege hegemonic ideologies and privilege whiteness and masculinity, the potential to resist these dominating structure structures of oppression may be slim. And this is seen in defining women's digital practices and engagement as toxic. This concept reflects a core component of black digital feminist practices. As Audre Lorde states, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. This is a fundamental reality that those with consciousness recognize. Although technologies were never created with the intent to destroy the hegemonic structure, they can provide temporary or partial gains in countering the establishment. And because they provide empowerment to women who employ them, they're still useful and they need to be examined. I, I, I couldn't with, with any of this, so I'm just gonna keep going, okay? <laughs> Social media in particular has allowed women of color to shape her story within the hegemonic structures of digital media. Hashtag culture and other forms of microblogging, while limited, in the aggregate, allow for an intricate analysis involving sometimes thousands of individuals on a singular topic. This form of meta-commentary directs the audience's attention to specific issues. And using black digital feminism as a theoretical guide, I discuss the tenets of interconnected identities, interconnected social forces, and distinct circumstances to better theorize women operating within internet technologies and also to capture the uniqueness of these marginalized women who sometimes feel compelled to create hashtags to draw attention to their physical and digital realities. And it starts in our own house. Hashtag Hotep Twitter. You were introduced to this um, framework last week in Andre Brock's um, presentation. Um, and I'll just read this here from um, Alexandria Pina from the Visibility Project. Identifying a member of Hotep Twitter, usually found championing, championing for the rights of black men while simultaneously throwing black women, black trans persons, black members of the LGBTQ community, or anyone else who is not a cis-head black male under the bus. The leaders of Hotep Twitter, if you will. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Hotep Twitter is the digital manifestation of not incorporating an intersecting analysis into black men's understanding of women, and it seeps its way from the kitchen table, from the pews in the church, from the block to the tweets. It's an extension of hegemonic black masculinity inherent um, in the civil rights movement, 
and it extends back to abolitionism. At the annual convention of the American Equal Rights Association in 1869, Frederick Douglass argued that issues pertaining to race were more salient than gender. This is an approach that many black men would continue to articulate through the struggle for black civil rights. Douglas felt that by incorporating black women into the Negro debate, that that would reduce the chances of securing the ballot for black men. His argument was rather compelling as he outlined the inhumane and atrocious conditions that pervaded the lives of black men, both free and slave. He ignored the fact that black women too were subject to those harsh conditions and some. His stance would create an imbalance leading to the continual domination of black men over black women. And this leads to reckless commentary by men such as Lil Wayne, Charlemagne the God, Lil Bow Wow, Victor Cruz. This ignorance also leads to fuckboys like Trick Daddy posting nonsense on their Instagram <laughs> accounts. I'm not going to read this and to give this a platform, but feel free to Google it if you want to. This hostility is not limited to just black women. Chicana feminists experienced the same conflict as they were asked to vow loyalty to their culture as opposed to being asked to embrace their racialized and gendered identities. Even more oppressive to second wave Chicana feminists, a statement was issued during the Chicano Youth Liberation Movement in 1969, which stated that Chicana women did not want to be liberated. Many of them immediately challenged this idea and began organizing formally on behalf of themselves to discuss issues of machismo, gender roles in the family, reproductive rights, controlling images such as la mujer mala, and economic and labor issues. These issues extend across digital platforms, from social media to blogs and even into gaming, where a lot of my work is, is central. I want to read a quote here from an interview that, that I did a few years back. Um, they aren't real. They aren't believable. They aren't even entertaining. It's sad. No matter the media we have, no matter the media, excuse me, we have to fight to get real stories of real women of color out there. Until they do it and do it right, we'll just create our own or complain until they do it right. Just a few minutes later in this conversation, she made the comment. So we'll be complaining because they will never get it right. This excerpt from an interview with the gamer and Xbox Live reflects the feeling of many women of color as consumers and producers of popular culture. In media outlets dominated by privileged bodies, the narrative disseminated is limited, given that privileged bodies are the primary producers of digital content. Thus, many women of color employ social, social media to document and bring attention to these portrayals and to their experiences in the gaming world. Social media has proven useful as it creates alternative spaces for women to develop their own community outside of video game culture. And women as deviants in the space dominated by males are seen as outsiders, 
and are not welcome because they fail to uphold the gender norm of masculinity. Because women are not accepted or even recognized, they find innovative ways to participate in this culture. And they found themselves here. I want to discuss um, some of these images here. Um, there was, um, there's a blog. I may, I may discuss this later, but just in case I don't, I want to talk about it here in Facebook, Black Girl Gamers, where they um, began collecting all the imagery of, of women of color in, in the games. Um, as many of you know, there aren't that many portrayals of women of color um, as protagonists in video games. So they're non-playable characters. So whenever they started to collect, you know, some of the top-selling games at that time, they noticed that a lot of the women of color, particularly this is Grand Theft Auto, um, Saints Row, and there were a few other games, they found that women were mostly reduced to, um, uh, uh, they were sex workers, um, they were highly um, uh, hypersexualized, and often victimized. Um, and this kind of transcended across um, across different different games. And Grand Theft Auto, this game in particular, was very interesting because um, all the streetwalkers, when they, they went through, a student did a study and, and noticed and found that all of the women, based on accents that they, that they heard in the space, all of them were either black or Latina. Um, so then that furthers the divide and it gives a great example for misogynoir, especially at that intersection of race and gender and, and class in particular. Um, and the reality of, of women within online spaces are no better. Um, and I think the creators of the content of these games, um, I think that's seeping its way into gaming culture. So the treatment of women is terrible. If any of you have kept up with what is um, in transpiring around Gamergate, then you know that harassment is persistent. Um, you know that it is a daily, uh, daily thing for women to endure um, that level of oppression in games. So for survival within gaming communities that are often full of racism, sexism, and heterosexism, many women self-segregate and form their own communities operating counter to the dominant narrative. Despite the extreme discrimination, lack of inclusion in the gaming industry, lack of accurate representation, and a host of other concerns, women still take part um, in an industry that doesn't recognize them as full participants. The incorporation of women into the practices of masculine, normative, hegemonic fandom, for instance, presents a host of issues for women who want to be a part of that conversation. Representations of women of color in gaming is very problematic, and marginalized bodies within gaming rightfully highlight these depictions. And because virtual communities, as I have said before, are inherently white and masculine and taken for granted, these unequal power relations are accepted as legitimate and they're embedded into the continued cultural practices within, within gaming and other mediated spaces. Pierre Bourdieu's theory of practice reveals the material and symbolic production of cultural goods and takes into account the mediators who contribute to the work's meaning and legitimization as their ultimate function to maintain the universal belief um, within, within that field. Flipping this framing, many women of color disrupt this existence and actively resist hegemonic practices. So by creating content within their own digital gaming communities outside the gaming world, I think I'm missing a page. I'm sorry, I'm missing. Um, there should be some slides here that kind of show like this, the meme culture that, that women, of women and women of color are engaged in within gaming practices. So they'll co-opt some images and they'll reframe them you know, for their own needs. So my apologies for not having that, that slide here. So by creating content within their own digital gaming communities outside the gaming world, female gamers blur the boundaries of restricted production they may not be allowed access to the spaces and industries controlled by men, but they are not silent and they are not passive bystanders consuming masculine ideology. 
These women act as agents of social change. And the mere presence of their marginalized, marginalized bodies disrupt the norms of the space designated for privileged bodies. They participate as social agents that engage in a dynamic and ongoing process of producing and reshaping the discourse about what it means to be a woman, a feminist, a person of color, an immigrant, etc. These particular ways that black women do technology has prompted you know, my creation of black digital feminism. And I modify the tenets of black feminism, techno-feminism, and cyber-feminism to reflect marginalized users within these digital realms. Specifically, black digital feminism concerns itself with three major themes. The social structural oppression of technology in digital spaces, intersecting oppressions experienced in digital spaces, and the distinctness of the digital feminist community. So matters of institutional racism, damaging stereotypical images, sexism, and classism, they're routinely uh, addressed by black feminists. Incorporating the inherent masculine bias in technology and the default whiteness of virtual spaces, this theme is imperative to the creation of this framework. Coco, Nakamura, and Rodman argued that the internet is far from liberatory, but rather is a space that continues a cultural map of assumed whiteness. Coco pointed out that attempts to make race and ethnicity present are met with colorblind resistance. The assumed white masculine body excludes women and people of color, and the mere presence of their bodies marks them as deviants in these spaces. Deviant social behavior manifests in the materiality of the body. Blackness and any association with blackness are punished severely, leading to the exclusion and marginalization, and women are particularly vulnerable to this. So ignoring the diverse lives of virtual inhabitants also leads to the inability of marginalized bodies to define their own digital realities. Marginalizing narratives perpetuated through the media reinforce limited conceptualizations of women. The second theme of black digital feminism is that women must confront and work to dismantle the overarching and interlocking structure of domination in terms of race, class, gender, and other intersecting oppressions. Because individual experience, individuals excuse me, experience oppression in different ways, we must not create a one-size-fits-all understanding of oppression. Black digital feminism also requires a recognition of the privileges that some marginalized bodies hold before we can begin to dismantle these privileges and understanding the multitude of ways that intersectionality can manifest. Such an understanding might have prevented the feminist Twitter war and avoided claims that black women and other women of color lead to toxicity in virtual spaces. So in the hashtag proclaiming, my oppression is greater than yours, white feminists are criticized for ranking oppression, dismissing grievances of women of color and other marginalized groups. This ranking runs counter to the goals of black digital feminism. Ranking oppression only leads to further marginalization of groups already on the periphery. Black digital feminism, in the spirit of feminism, encourages a privileging of women's perspectives and ways of knowing because race, gender, class status, ability, sexuality, and hosts of other identifiers generate knowledge about the world. Valuing these perspectives is the only way to liberate women from the confines of hegemonic notions deeming these identities unworthy. Black digital feminism also recognizes that the lived experiences of women manifest in the, in the digital world as well. Women do not have the luxury of opting out of any aspect of their identity. 
And by privileging these once marginalized identities, black digital feminist spaces can begin to move towards progressive and meaningful solutions to hegemonic notions about women. And although all women share a common struggle, examining their intersecting realities reveals the distinctness of their everyday lived experiences. Women may share sexual oppression, but it is not clear how this can unite all women whose, whose lives, work, life expectancy, and family life are all so structured by the hierarchies of racism, ethnicity, colonialism, or nationalism. Power differences between women are so great that even the similar struggle against men are different. Women's struggle with technology is indirectly a struggle with masculinity, patriarchy, and male privilege. Digital feminist inability to incorporate the structural nature of inequality results in a vision, in a limited vision of, lim excuse me, of liberation. As Fessel long recognized, women cannot stand together against oppression if we stand in different power relations to, to one another. Black digital feminism also addresses the distinct nature of how women utilize virtual technologies. Women have used social media for activism and change as well as to advance contemporary feminism. The internet has propelled activism and, empower and empowerment in that many individuals can take action on a singular issue. The tenets of black digital feminism never detach the personal from the structural or the communal, and that sets black digital feminism apart from cyber and techno feminism. The key is in how marginalized women communicate and how their internet usage is a continuation of their offline selves. Digital social media are important in that they represent for women of color and other marginalized group lacking resources, a path to a space where they can participate. The once voiceless can be heard and that leads to empowerment. So Twitter, Facebook and other social networking sites have allowed women to empower themselves and mobilize their communities. Black women's use of social media also reflects their incorporation of digital technologies and their continued efforts on the ground Twitter and Facebook have been used to organize marches, highlight continued sexism on college campuses, and draw attention to any number of issues. Maybe, in fact, because of black digital feminism's simultaneous engagement in the virtual and physical communities, the master's tools might be able to dismantle the master's house. Thank you all. Appreciate you all. Questions, comments, other engagements, thoughts, feelings, perceptions? Yes, hello. Uh, you mentioned this person's name, but didn't really speak um, in detail about it. And I love the term, by the way. Um, I'm curious to know um, what you think about black women with regard to the spaces that they have and actually own in digital media, um, because I, I'm thinking about, so like this past week with the whole Shadow Being of God, uh, offering space to someone like Tony Lauren, mm. and also saying that black women mm. and Latinas need to step up mm. and create their own platform, but also not even recognizing that he's kind of bootstrapping in that, that mm -hmm. comment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I guess I, I'd just love to hear what what your thoughts are on, on that, but yeah. also how, how do women of color continue to yeah. make their space, even though, you know, to, to have the resources to create a platform like that is absolutely, absolutely, absolutely difficult. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the failures of Charlemagne in, in that mm -hmm. at that time and space was that he didn't recognize what had, what exists already. Yes. You know, and I think there's um, there's something missing in the conversation where people think, oh, all of a sudden, you know, you know, women of color, you know, have consciousness and they're using social media. They've never used technology before. Mm -hmm. That's a lie. You know, if you think back, you know, to organizing and back to the women's movement, you know, the innovative things that, that women across the board were doing, back to the, the civil rights movement. It was women of color that were there who were, you know, um, creating things with um, making flyers and printing, using technology. You know, it made, and, you know, some people say it's like low-level tech, but tech, technology is technology, you know. Um, so I think those things aren't highlighted. I know last week, Andre Brock gave like a listing of a lot of things, you know, um, whenever I urged him to, to talk about the historical um, um, track of women's use of technology like over time. And that's ignored, that's not acknowledged. You know, so the spaces are there, the spaces exist. They're just not recognized, they're not supported, you know, because I, I think it's, um, we saw a lot of that, you know, especially with a lot of the black lives, backlash with Black Lives Matter. People are like, okay, well, you need to talk about black on black crime. You got to do something about that. You know what? We are. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of things that have been done in different communities. You know, Chicago and Detroit, New York. LA. These cities have been doing things for a long time. They just haven't been recognized. They haven't been supported. So I think what we, what, I, I don't know how to do it. You know, because of course it's not on the oppressed to tell the oppressor anything. You know, it's up to the oppressor to find out. You know, about these things on, on their own. Um, but I think maybe it's, it's on us, you know, to, to share. I know, you know, I tweet a lot about different organizations that are doing really cool things with technology. You know, so uh, Black Nerd, Nerd Girls, um, Black Girls Co., you know, Hack the Hood, you know, so there are a lot of organizations that are doing with a lot of these innovative things, and they don't get the platforms that, yeah. that are there. Yeah, but, I mean, he just he spewed his ignorance, you know. He just doesn't know because he doesn't care. You know, just because it doesn't trend. You yeah. mean it's not, not existing. <laughs> Other questions or comments? Other thoughts? Other examples? I love hearing Hotep Twitter examples. <laughs> Sasha, yes. Oh yeah, this is amazing. I have so many questions and thoughts, but I'll just pick one. Um, so, could you uh, talk a little bit about um, so the um, the failure of the game development community and the tech sector more broadly, so like not only not only the continued you know representation of black women and women of color's bodies through these reproducing these tropes in re repackaged ways. So like you talk about that a lot, but could you talk a little bit about what does this mean about the affordances of the tools and platforms and systems and the the ways that, that gameplay might work, um, you know, the logics of the game, the logics of the platforms. Mm -hmm. Like, talk about like that level of things. Like, what is what does this do to the technological systems and games and uh, and tools that, that yeah. we're building and developing? Absolutely. I, yesterday, I was at the I was at the game lab, you know, M MIT's game lab, and I received a lot of useful information that helped me make sense of things. Right. So one of the takeaways that I had from 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 that was first off. Diversifying, just adding women and adding people of color to these spaces isn't going to change those spaces, right? Because there's something specific to the culture of those spaces, the, the practices that are embedded in, in those day-to-day, -day, everyday kinds of things that, that women are subject to, that people of color are subject to. Um, and then also, like the bottom line that you know they also highlighted was selling. You know, this Hollywood Hollywood um, 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 role of Hollywood, which is just selling. You, know, you got a template of what has worked in the past, 
And so that, that gets replicated, that gets repackaged, that just gets redone. So, you know, doing a different kinds of things would scare marketers, essentially. You know, they're like, well, you know, we don't know if that's going to work. You saw what happened, you know. That didn't sell. And then, but my thing, I think, you know, another, um, another conversation, I don't remember who it was, you know, but brought up, the, brought up the fact that, you know, you have these outliers, you have these exceptions of these awesome, cool, innovative things, like a Laura Croft that does well, and it sells well. Like, how come we can't have any more of that? You know, it's like we're, we're touting around, you know, the, these tokens that, that, it, that exist like, within these spaces, and like, nobody is like going that extra mile to continue to do that, or to figure out, okay, what's that template? How, why was Laura Croft successful? Um, and speaking of Laura Croft, I always want to make sure that people know Laura Croft was a brown woman. She started off South American adventurer at first, but they didn't think she would sell, so they kind of reframed her origin story to be British so she could sell. So I think that's important. A lot of people don't know that. People need to know that. Um, but I think we have, and so people are asking me a lot about these recent games that have come out. So like um, Watch Dogs 2, you know, has a black protagonist. Um, Mafia. Mafia 3, yeah, Mafia 3 is a black protagonist. Um, I know Battlefield 1 did some innovative things with the Harlem Hellfighters, like in the beginning. Um, so there, you know, people are giving me these few examples of like, look, they finally figured it out. I haven't played it yet, so I'm like, the jury's still out until Kishana says. <laughs> um, but, you know, I haven't played it, so I don't know what the narrative is, you know. So, so for instance, you know, the, you know, Battlefield 1 featuring the Harlem Hellfighters, I don't, uh, for those of you who don't know, the Harlem Hellfighters, um, and they were essentially like the front lines. Y'all watch South Park? Mm-hmm. Y'all yeah. remember like Operation, was it Operation Darky or Operation Blackie, where they put like all the black mm-hmm. folks up there and they got killed first? That's essentially Harlem Hellfighters. That's essentially what they were. They were, you know, like a, a first line of defense um, uh, for the United States, and they all, they were decimated and killed. Um, so Battlefield 1 actually takes you through. Uh, it's, it's problematic. So essentially, you know, you wake up, you're on the battlefield, and it's a black man and he's fighting, um, and then they let you know that you're gonna be killed. So when you die, they give you a name. So I thought, you know, kind of memorialize them. So I thought it was really dope at first, right? So it gave, gives their name and where they're from, uh, and then you respawn as another black soldier, um, and you die, again, they give your name, you know, the years you lived, respawn. You're another black, so they continued this I, it was disturbing. So I reached a point where it was very disturbing because I'm not sure what the effect was supposed to be. So how I read it, it was more of this consumption of black death, this hyper-visibility of blackness that we see in media right now, where we don't mind consuming it. Um, and, and then the story just ends. And I'm like, okay, this is a game. These are spaces where anything's possible, anything can happen. But then they want to give us this real-world example of like, okay, these black bodies are just dying and there's nothing you can do about it, right? How come the black dude couldn't be like the hero where, you know, like Bruce Willis where he's just going to figure out a way to survive and, you know, he's... We don't get that, you know? So I'm not sure how you how you break that. I don't know if you can. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know if there's anybody willing to, to do that work. Um, I don't know. Future game developers, please help me figure that out. If you can do it, please do it. We, we, we need it, you yeah. know? Yes. I was actually literally going to ask about, like, is there, so I'm not a gamer, yeah. but are there, you know, companies that are, you know, particularly targeting, you know, feminists, like, with feminist gamers, 
who are making feminist games that portray women in a positive light and yeah. also shed light on you know, intersectionality. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. There are tons of examples um, that. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they are. Kinda. Um, so, but the games that I'm talking about are like the, the AAA games, like these big companies that produce these large Hollywood titles. So they Call of Duties, Gears of Wars, you know, like Grand Theft Autos. So that's where a lot of my research is focused on, you know, the ones that have this huge platform to reach all these folks, right? But the indie indie games are doing amazing things. Of course, I don't have the names off the top of my head, so probably other, you know, folks that are working gaming, they can give you those titles if, if you want them. They exist. They exist, you know, so there are some folks that are doing some really innovative, cool things with people of color, with women. Um, they're not reduced to tropes. Um, so it exists, they just don't have that mass marketing appeal or somebody's not putting you know, that effort. They don't have the money, and a lot of these smaller companies just don't have the resources to do a lot of that stuff too. But it exists. Yes, sir. Hi, um, I was wondering, I don't know if this makes sense with your research or not, but I think I'm very interested. Um, is there, a, this question, is there, um, this is from my own experience, is there research on the use of black bodies as avatars in online game playing? Because, you know, from my experience, you know, you play video games and you see, like, you know, people, like, literally acting out, you know, being black. Sure. I mean, so, um, not all people who are black in, in, in Grand Theft Auto are black in real life. And also, like, you know, I, I played, the, I played uh, Grand Theft Auto once as a black woman. I was crazy yeah. online. Nobody oh, gave me yeah. a chance to even walk the street. Yeah. So. You know, they're like, what's that? Yeah. Is there, you know? So I guess, I'm, and I think I'm understanding your question. Um, so Ilyas Abukar, my photographer, by the way. If anybody needs headshots, contact him. It's horrible. Um, so the one, a game that pops into my mind is Rust. Do you all remember Rust? Um, I didn't play it, but Rust was the game from, it was a Steam game where you could, but you were automatically assigned an identity. Um, so I think there was, I remember just reading the reviews in the backlash, so I didn't play this. So if anybody can fill me yeah. in some more about So, So the okay. way it works that it's, it's a big multiplayer game where everybody's dropped into the same world. And the thing, so everyone has an avatar and you start out like naked and defenseless. The thing is, your avatar is randomly generated and uniquely tied to your username so you cannot change it without literally switching the account on which you bought this game. And it will generate for you whether you are male, whether you are female, what your body shape is like, what your skin color is. Um, and if you're male, I think it's like breast size and penis size also uniquely tied to your identifier. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't get to choose any of these things. And people were mad. They were so angry. Yeah. Um, and I think the creator has stated that he, he did that not necessarily for a political not to be explicitly like feminist or anti-racist, but he did it to be a provocateur, to, to, to challenge and to shock. Mm -hmm. It worked. Oh yes, it worked. Oh, yeah. So maybe that answers, I think, maybe, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking about the example that you gave. And also, some online spaces will allow you to customize, you know, your character as you want. So I guess I'm thinking about what is given to us by these developers. What, what do they prescript and what do they create for us? To? So in online spaces where you can customize, you know, you, people can do, you know, what they want in those spaces. I mean, yeah. how is that, you know, like a, uh, about, so you say, like, you know, the, the stereotype of the wigger, like, in everyday life. Sure. How's that different when it happens in digital spaces? You know, like you're. Uh, I'm wondering the because blurring of boundaries, yeah. if you will. Um, so I, I mean, I see a lot of connections. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I don't. There's a lot of anonymity online games, and you know, like yeah. you can be, you know, live your authentic black life without being like called out. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm like, I don't know what I'm saying, but I feel like there's something interesting happening around embodiment. Sure. You know, in a way, like we usually think of embodiment on like, is where well, we talk about physical modifications. We think yeah. of like, you know, like you know, a surgery. You know, yeah. but like you know, if you think about digital spaces, as places where like you know, the same process happens. Sure. I don't know. Sure. I don't. No, I. I think I kind of get what you're saying, but I think that modification is not afforded to all bodies within yeah. the space. Yeah. Um, you know, so so for instance, you know, whenever I'm online, if I don't have like a voice modulator, I, I sound like a woman in the space. You know, I know a lot of people sound black within spaces. A lot of people can't hide their accents within these spaces. You know, so uh, as, as, a far, as far as other spaces, I'm not sure, but I'm thinking about like, like Xbox Live and PlayStation Network, they're largely audio you know, communities where you're talking to each other. So you're not able to, you know, rich yourself of that. Um, and, and again, a lot of that comes through, you know, some research has been done, a lot of that, the identity comes through in text-based communities as well. You know, ways that we speak, you know, the ways that we know the world. Um, and that, you know, that, 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 comes, that comes through as well. So, um, so you're saying like on the internet, anybody can be what they want to be? Is that, no, is that I'm not saying, oh, okay, I'm okay, not okay. making any okay. claims. I was okay. just wondering about like, you know, yeah, sure. we are obsession with current, obsession with post-racialism, and things like that. Post gender, even right? Sure. You know, sure. so like, uh, like, what you know, this moment produces or makes uh, possible. You know, and it could be harmful, it could be positive. I can't see the positive side, but like, you know, yeah. But like, you know, <laughs> right. but I'm gonna go yeah. on because gotcha. I was a white man. See what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Um, I wanted to know, like, uh, what role does like or do Afro Latinas play here? Yeah. I mean, I mean, they were present in my dissertation, so half of my sample set was it um, was. was so, oh, okay. So, because I always find interesting, like, when we talk about women, we talk about, like, like Hispanic women, and people assume Hispanic women. Whiteness. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And so, it's very complicated whenever people are talking about Afro-Latinas, like, where yeah. they categorize them, like, mm-hmm. as, like, Hispanic or, or, right. or black, or how does that work out? Yeah, absolutely. So, I just wanted to know, like, yeah. in reference to this, like, how, how did that play out? Absolutely. So, in my dissertation, you know, with the sample, well, it was all women of color. They all identify racially as black, but ethnically as, uh, as different things, right? Um, so, in the experiences of, like, for instance, the Puerto Rican, that were, Puerto Rican women that were in the sample, um, they talked about like some of the nativism, you know, that, that would come through. You know, people would hear accents and assume that they were not a part of that national identity. Um, you know, so they got lashed out at, you know, at, at, at particular ways. And then they also talked about how like their black male counterparts, um, African American male counterparts. You know, I think uh, some of the, the the women were partnered with African American men, and so they expressed that a lack of understanding. Um, by their men um, to their their lived realities, their digital realities too. So you know that came through. You know those narratives were 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 so descriptive. You know talking about you know what 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 those women go through. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this. So going back to talking about diversity in gaming, the need for just more. Uh, uh, visible representations of, for example, women of color. I was also wondering if you had any thoughts on um, a diversity of, not just representation, but diversity of, so, call it, fantasy or, mm-hmm. so so that mm-hmm. so this idea that that you know there are some quote unquote universal fantasies that always sell. Like those are the templates that drive mm-hmm. these AAA games. That everybody wants to be powerful. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to amass power. Mm-hmm. And um, there, right, and there's been a trend so of. But especially um, fantasies that tap into very much these like colonialist mm-hmm. settler uh, fantasies of like finding pristine, you know, 
blank landscapes on which you can exert your will that are either don't have natives or have natives that are completely okay with being exploited. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> right. 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 It's like, so yeah. it's basically conquest instead of colonialism. Yeah, and, and pushing it as yeah. like a, a sort of, uh, you know, a racial, a historical, a social thing that is just an expression of some kind of intrinsic urge or mm -hmm. fantasy or desire for power that is then naturalized. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on like mm -hmm. the diversity of I diversity of fantasy, diversity right. of, of of this kind of experience right. to mm -hmm. kind of complement the need for diversity of representation. Yeah. So this woman yesterday when I was at the at the game lab made a really <laughs> awesome comment. She made the comment that you know people are only able to produce what they know, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and I think that goes to um, an important reason of why we need to, to diversify you know, some of the gaming spaces. When I was at EKU, um, we were developing our the curriculum for the game development program, right? And I was particularly concerned that that curriculum, in the midst of Gamergate, what was actually happening, didn't have a cultural component. It didn't have a component where, you know, it really interrogated what technology means, you know, the, the reception of that, right? So, you know, I worked hard, you know, the, the, the director was very um, willing to incorporate, you know, some of my courses into that curriculum. But I remember um, I was at Refig, I remember somebody was, was presenting about the curriculums like across the board. Yeah. How about Refig? I can't remember which, which project was like it was. One of the first ones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But basically there is... That doesn't exist in some, in the curriculum for the people who are making games, learning to make games, and who will be working in the industry, right? So I think we have to have more of more diversity in the curriculum, you know, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so people will have that because most people don't know what you mean settler colonialism. They don't know what the fuck right. you're talking about right now. They don't get that. They've seen it played out, but then whenever you put that into a game like a, like a Red Dead Redemption, you know, it's played out in you know like some of the typical Western you know movie kind of ways, you know, you know, if you will. Not not complex. You know, there's really no deep meaning or engagement with it. Um, so I don't I don't know how we reach that point where we have a diversity of, of all that fantasy bodies of that. Um, you just continue doing what you do, so you can go get you a job, <laughs> so you can go make the games, right? So I don't I don't know. And I'm also reaching a point, you know, where a lot of my participants, you know, in some of my my, my um, things that I do, they don't even care what the representations are. Like Adrian Shaw's work, you know, revealed that most people did not care what the representations are. I'm a lifelong gamer. I didn't care about the offensive representations in Street Fighter that essentially just obliterated third world identities, you know, kind of animalized them, you know. I, I was I was consuming this. I was watching Grand Theft Auto. I played Grand Theft Auto. I played all these games, you know. And I didn't care about what the representations was until I learned that I needed to care and that it mattered. So I don't know. There was another hand here. I can't remember where it was. And then yes, yes. See, I want to ask a question, but I don't want to photograph. Oh, no photographs, please. Oh, no. <laughs> so I, I want to try to make a comparison between uh, laundered money and laundered contributions of 
black women online, mm -hmm. right? And um, what it seems to me to be a trend recently of exposing um, contributions that have been stolen by non-black women, right? So I think there's room here in this interpretation to talk about laundered contributions and how um, that ends up looking like a platform in another color, mm. right? Or in another instantiation, right? One word that we use now is misappropriation, right? Or appropriation. We say appropriation, <laughs> right? But um, yeah, so uh, what do you have to say about that? About how exposure is its own form of um, activism, right? Yeah. That black women are wielding online. Absolutely. You know, showing instances where plagiarism ha ha has mm -hmm. happened, mm -hmm. showing instances where whole ideas have been stolen and used as articles in other platforms. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, um, yeah. I guess I I always think about what the reception, the public reception of these call-outs are, you mm -hmm. know, right? Um, and even though, you know, we think that, you know, like Black Twitter, for instance, is like this big thing, you know, we think that these different spaces that, you know, women of color inhabit, um, and how we make the news, our content makes the news, it's stolen by journalists and stuff. But then I think about the larger reception of it. I'm like, are we reaching re the audiences that, that we want to reach? You know, are people really being perceptive and listening? So then I wonder, you know, so what is like, like academia's response to a lot of this stuff when we can show and highlight, you know, this, this thievery of, of our work? And then I think about, you know, different cases that I've seen where um, the people who get punished, you know, for some of these cases, right, are women and people of color. You know, it isn't, you know, the, the men that have stolen ideas or, you know, creatively plagiarized, you know, our stuff. Hmm. So I don't know if that, the power of that, that call-out culture, other than empowering ourselves, <laughs> knowing that it's out there, knowing that we said, hey, you know what, so-and-so stole my shit. I need y'all to know that. But then, you know, what, what happens after that? So I guess that's one of the things that, you know, I talk about a lot. I'm like, you know, it's important for empowerment, but are we actually dismantling the master's house? You know, are we really, you know, what kind of, you know, strides are we act, are we actually making? And then I just get, I'm thinking about, like, the different cases, you know, jump into another thing, you know, the power that Black Lives Matter has. But I'm still waiting for a prosecution. I'm still waiting for, I'm still waiting for somebody to go to jail, you know, for doing something, you know? So, so, I, so I, don't, I don't know. I, I'm interested, I'm fascinated to hear about, you know, is there power in that and what, what we're doing? You know, this, this calling out, this call out culture, you know, that, that a lot of women of color, you know, we see ourselves in. Um, what's the long-term impact of that? Are we affecting change? I don't know. I don't know. Cool name? What's that? I don't think I know what that is. Do I know this? Um, there was a there was a debate on um, Black Girl Dangerous blog like starting two years ago. Yeah. This conversation about um, like call out culture invading a lot of spaces, including like ostensibly progressive and even radical spaces. Yeah. People being very very quick um, to immediately just uh, publicly call people on any any transgression, um, but not necessarily from place. Of, so calling towards calling culture was this blog post, I'm forgetting the author's name, if someone recalls it, please share that, but it was basically arguing that within, in in-group spaces, that we needed to like be doing more of um, lovingly calling people out and trying to say like, I, like you're doing this thing right now and 
I still love you, but we need to move. We need to shift you and move the way that you're talking and thinking and speaking right now. So it's basically an, an attempt to say how do we how do we build more solidarity rather than continue to fragment. Um, I don't know. Is that a good summary, Katie? Yeah. yeah I think Does anyone know the author? ポスト。あの、ま、そうですね、ま、そうですね、ま、そうですね、ま、そうですね、ま、そうですね、ま、そうですね、ま、そうですね、ま、そうですね、ま、そうですね、ま、そうですね、ま、そうですね、ま、そ
interacted with a white person. So like I have this forced exposure and like, of course it's a skewed perspective, but I have some exposure, you know, but some people just have none at all. So you're just kind of like how, if, if our communities are insulated and we are all living in our own respective bubbles, like how do you even educate someone or how does someone educate themselves if they never had a window to do that, you know? So it's kind of hard. Cause like, when I was like in high school I had a lot of resentment towards white people because I was just like so angry like how could you like treat all these people like this but then you're kind of like if we are all products of like American history like Mm -hmm. how much can I really blame you you know what I'm saying Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah Yeah. that is yeah I guess so what do you see is like how do we I guess breach that so is it Calling in, calling out, like I want to, I want to use, I'm gonna use these terms right now. They're, they're in my head. I'm really thinking about them. Do we do as liberals have done? Are doing really, right now, being very nice. I'm like, okay, we'll play with you all. Be nice to us. I'm like for this calling in perspective where it's kind of like white people like come get your come get your people like you know what I mean like it's like W come out Bill. yeah yeah come like come get your girl get like she's part. saying some crazy stuff like come get her like yeah. like I expect black men to call out Charlemagne like yeah you know what I mean like right and it's not I'm thinking even thinking about the comments with yeah the and yeah but the black men were just saying oh he's stupid oh he's silly and we're like, hey, call no. him out. Yes. Yeah, wasn't, yeah. Yeah, no. He's not just being stupid. Yeah. Like, he obviously believes, let's have a discussion. Like, yeah. let's not just, like, exactly. chuck things up to people being silly and exactly. being, like, foolish. And then that goes back to that tendency to tell, you know, especially women, vow loyalty to your men, essentially. Yeah. That's essentially, you know, what, what, what women are told across the spectrum, across the board. That's With true. the election of Trump. You're right. That's what I'm like There was some kind of iteration of that. Mm-hmm. Like, all right, white women now. I was watching, there was some comedy show where basically they were saying that, you know, like the men would go to like these Trump rallies and I'm like really excited and engaged mm-hmm. and ready, you know, fuck their wives really good and stuff. And so white women wanted more of that. So they're like, okay, we'll vote for Trump so we can get more of that happy, happy white men. It was <laughs> crazy. So I can't sad. remember who the who That's the wild. Was. Oh my I gotta God. find I'm gonna find share. I'm like, okay, that's that's really interesting perspective. Um I just heard this, like just the other day. Does anybody remember? Where this is at? I'm just watching some crazy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> But, but but yeah. So yeah. I don't I don't know where we where we start even to have the conversation. Yeah. You know where we have to respect everybody's opinions right. and perspectives. Right. And I don't know. Um, yes, we have solutions for us. I know you always have solutions. No, I have. I don't have solutions. I just have a totally separate question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it really struck me um, the image that you showed of the sort of the continuity of these tropes across time, um, and the especially the one like looking at. Um, black female athletes and the way that they're attacked both they're both animalized and they're also like defeminized and so it was and like called men and so then it was just really striking me in terms of thinking about the, inter- the intersections between uh, misogynoir and transphobia um, and I don't know I guess I just I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that and how that operates but then also in the in the gaming space, I mean, I'm just thinking about Avatar and Avatar selection and this, um, what was it, Rust? What's it called? Yeah, Rust. Yeah. yeah. So, like, the the perpetually reproduced, uh, you know, binary gender, mm-hmm. um, and that even in the spaces that are critical or the indie games mm-hmm. or, all, like, that are seen as more progressive, that, like, 
cis normativity is still constantly being reproduced. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I wonder if you could talk yeah. a little bit about that. Sure. Um, I don't have much opinion beyond you know just the examples that I've seen um, disseminated. I remember having a conversation with a group of um, um, there was a group of trans youth somewhere, and they were saying that um, basically talking about I guess Brittany Griner, for instance, has has um, she said. No, it wasn't pretty proud. It was some athlete that actually says that she identifies you know, as a man, right? And how there's even no room because you know we knew her as a woman, and you know, she's making the transition like, to be a man, and that she should be respected as that, and that some of that that you now I had to tell them like, well, these people who are acknowledging, saying that they're men aren't actually respecting their self-identified identities. That's not what's happening now. You know, it's going back to this, um, you know, they're stereotyping, you know, women's outward appearances, placing um, assigned, you know, labels on them. Um, so I don't really have, like, an opinion, like, beyond that just from what I've seen. I'm just, it's, it's not my area of research or anything like that. Um, but I think, you know, it goes back to these isolated lives that we live where we aren't exposed to different people. You know, we don't have, um, we haven't essentially downloaded that data into young people so that they you know, don't have the information when they grow up. So I think it really starts with essentially diversifying our circles. And I lived in Kentucky, so there wasn't that much diversity, right? So my kids were exposed to whiteness everywhere they went to. Even in, I remember, um, in their schools, even like, you know, I remember they, uh, play dates and things like that. Um, so I had to essentially expose them to diversity through mediated outlets, right? For instance, they were exposed to Asian-ness through like fresh off the boat, you know? And so I tried to find like, progressive representations, as progressive as I could, you know, for them to be exposed to these, to different populations and different groups. Um, I mean, I don't know if I'm doing a good job of that, but if I can't even find the diversity in my life, you know, how do I even begin to do that? Um, so, um, but I think a lot of it just goes to like these, this lack of education, lack of understanding of these different groups. And we need to do more of that. However, we do that. Some of the class, the classrooms not going to do it. Um, a lot of people don't aren't even equipped to fill their children, you know, with a lot of that stuff. So I don't, I don't know. It's a lot of I don't know. So I don't have answers to any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I know Sasha that there was a lot of backlash against Rust from trans gamers who saw it as like a perpetuation of the experience of being in the wrong body. Um, in that. You know, um, for example, trans female gamers who were then their the bodies that they were given in Rust were male were forced to like relive that experience, the traumatic experience of um, of having male bodies that they don't identify with. Um, so it was seen. I mean, that the criticism was basically that it's like this. You know, um, that it's it's like a interesting experiment that might frustrate frustrate you a little bit if you're cisgendered, but if you dealt with that. Um, with that form of oppression already, that it's just making you relive it for like a point that like, you know, for like cis white men to get basically. That's so interesting and like I didn't play the game and so I didn't, and I didn't like follow the debates but like just hearing about it, I, I would, I have such the opposite reaction. I'm like, this is amazing. This is a way for like cis people mm -hmm. to be forced to like engage <laughs> on some level even for a short time mm -hmm. in this space yeah. and that could be an opportunity mm -hmm. for education. So I'm, yeah. did people try and do like education and activism around that at all, or there's just this critique? Well, no? Yeah. Okay. I, I think, I mean, I don't want to just represent Fox or Elf too much, but um, there, there is an idea that, like, 
everyone does not have the same type of identification with a video game character that they are controlling, and that they see this as being them. This is the identity, and, and there's there's including including one reaction is like I like to see Laura Croft's ass in front of me. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's very nice. You know, like mm -hmm. I, you know, there there might be a voyeuristic or sexualized uh, relationship. There might be a relationship in which. Uh, someone is, uh, has, is, is sort of touristic, like, oh, what would it be like to have this, mm -hmm. this different identity? Mm -hmm. Or some people may just say, that's a playing piece. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't, I don't care whether I'm the hat or the car in Monopoly, why do I care what, mm -hmm. what character I have? So, mm -hmm. so I don't think there, I, I think, and that makes the experiment perhaps much more interesting. <laughs> you know, the fact that also, you know, another variable is people's relationship to this. But I wouldn't assume that everyone just, you know, has this cathexis of, uh, of pure identification with the with the avatar of the character. Unpopular opinion, but I certainly think that Americans don't like lack of choice when it comes to the products they consume. Lack of choice when it comes to the products you buy. You know, it's not the freedom to live your life the way you want. It's the freedom to buy whatever you want if you have the money to do it. Yeah, I hate it when there's only Pepsi. Darn America. Six twenty. Okay. Other questions? Other comments? I just love you so much. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it.